Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hate speech doesn't always lead to atrocities. In fact, it rarely leads to atrocities. Hate speech is everywhere. But when we do have situations of atrocities, it's very likely that hate speech, among other risk factors, have been at play. And we know that today this is happening in the cyberspace predominantly. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Dr. Danielle Ireland-Piper, and I'm coming to you from the Australian National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Rhiannon Nelson, who is a cyber security postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. I'm also joined by Dr. Cecilia Jacob, who's an associate professor and fellow in the Department of International Relations at the Coral Bell School at the Australian National University. Welcome, Rhiannon. Welcome, Cecilia. Thanks so much, Danielle, for having me. Hi, Danielle. It's a pleasure to be here. So the topic of today's podcast is unpacking some of the security issues and the nexus between cyber and humanitarian intervention. Of course, we know that in this day and age, the concept of national security is broadly conceived, and we know that there are intersections between matters of national security and matters of global security. Of course, conflict and humanitarian crisis in one country can cause regional destabilisation and have consequences for security in another country. And so in that context, uh, it will be very interesting to hear from both of you the nexus between what we call R2P, the responsibility to protect, and issues of humanitarian intervention in a cyber context. So, Cecilia, if I could turn to you first... Could you explain what we mean when we talk about R2P, the responsibility to protect, and why it matters for security? Yes, so the responsibility to protect uh, is a a doctrine or a principle that was agreed to by the international community. They formally agreed to it in 2005 at the, the World Summit. So this was a gathering of 170 heads of state. So this was a very important agreement um, that was signed in the World Summit Outcome document. And it basically uh, states what are the responsibilities of states in response to the crimes of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. If I can interrupt you there, Cecilia, why was it limited to just those four crimes? So uh, for the benefit of our audience, not all criminal offences or offences relating to national security would have the status of an international crime. So why was it that the international community focused just on those four? 
there was a need to respond to the challenges of genocide and war crimes in a way I think that still hadn't been clarified in international law. So if we have a look at the development of international humanitarian law, it's very clear that this pertains to situations of armed conflict. Uh, Human rights law uh, sets a benchmark for the behaviour of states. But what we found in the 1990s and what really led to the principle of the responsibility to protect, that there was still ambiguity within international law as to the status of humanitarian intervention. So when there was a situation of genocide or crimes against humanity happening within a state, so a state committing atrocities against its own population, by the 1990s, really this idea of sovereignty as non-intervention had ossified within the international community. And there were, as we know, a lot of failures on behalf of the international community to actually effectively prevent or respond to the Rwandan genocide in um uh, the conflicts in Bosnia and, and the former Yugoslavia. Uh, and then, of course, we had Kosovo in 1999. So this was the airstrikes conducted by NATO that did not have a UN Security Council mandate, but were deemed uh, after the fact to have been legitimate, even though they were illegal. And this really compelled the international community to rethink, you know, what is their guidance within international law around what states can and can't do in situations of genocide and mass atrocity? Um, obviously, there's a, a moral as well as a legal imperative to do something. And at what point would it be legally permissible to use force to protect populations within um, another jurisdiction. So in 2001, the Canadian government actually put together the International Commission on Intervention and um, uh, Sovereignty. And they came up originally with this idea of responsibility to protect that had a wider range of uh, crimes, I guess you could say, or human rights violations to which they argued that indeed the international community, when states failed to protect their own populations, Um, did have a responsibility to protect that, in fact, sovereignty was contingent uh, on the behaviour of states in respecting and protecting the human rights of their own populations. That's a really important point you raised there, Cecilia. And just to give everyone context, um, the term international humanitarian law actually refers to the conduct of armed hostilities. And the link here Cecilia is making um, is an important one for national security because National security in many ways is preoccupied with the protection of sovereignty. And so there was this tension in the international community between a moral, legal and political obligation to respect the sovereignty of an independent nation state. But of course, if that nation state is perpetrating crimes against its own population, uh, there had to be an exception to that. And that's essentially where R2P, the responsibility to protect, comes in. Is, is that right, Cecilia, as an exception to sovereignty? That's right. So if we're to jump forward to the RTP principle that was um, signed around these four crimes. So the idea here was to actually establish a principle around those agreed within international criminal law. So we know that uh, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity are defined in the Rome Statute as international um, crimes. Um, and ethnic cleansing also has jurisprudence from the International Criminal Tribunal of former Yugoslavia. So this is a benchmark that the international community can agree to. But if I just want to make this point before we move on is that the very first, so paragraph 138 actually reiterates that states have the primary responsibility for preventing and for protecting their own populations from these mass atrocity crimes. 
where they fail to do so, so where they either don't have the will or they don't have the capacity to prevent and to protect their own populations from mass atrocity crimes, and this responsibility falls to the international community, first in the area of assistance, so we should be assisting states to help them fulfil their primary responsibility, um, and where there is absolutely no capacity of that state to do so themselves, so the international community themselves has a responsibility, including through the use of force as a last resort, but hopefully we would exhaust uh, other coercive but non-forceful means um, to actually step in to protect those populations. And so there is a direct link both for our own national security of how we conduct um, our own strategies of uh, atrocity prevention at home, but also how we engage abroad. Thank you, Cecilia. And of course, Cecilia there referred to the Rome Statute. And uh, for the non-legal listeners, the Rome Statute refers to the instrument that set up the International Criminal Court. And the International Criminal Court has authority over international crimes, but only in circumstances where a particular nation state is unwilling or unable to intervene. So just to give context to that. So we've got this exception to the principle of sovereignty in the interest of protecting the safety of a population. And, of course, national security is preoccupied with the notion of, of safety uh, of a population. So that's that's where these two co-align. Now, of course, um, just to bring you into the conversation, Rianne, and your area of expertise is considering this notion of humanitarian intervention in the specific context of cyber. So... The nexus between cyber and security is well documented now and, of course, is is a very hot topic at the moment. But what's the link between cyber and humanitarian intervention? Thanks, Danielle. Something that you alluded to uh, in your opening remarks really illustrates perpetrators of atrocity crimes today are increasingly online. Uh, Perpetrators are resorting to new technologies and digital platforms to coordinate their crimes, to recruit, to fund uh, their crimes and to ultimately execute and follow through. Maybe the the best example of this is something that is referred to as Facebook being for the Myanmar genocide, what the Radio Rwanda broadcasts were for the genocide in 1994 in, in Rwanda. And the overwhelming approach to sort of countering online content leading to offline harms and countering radicalization tends to emphasize things like deleting uh, online uh, hate speech and toxic content, deprioritizing uh, disinformation and fake news so that it doesn't appear as high up on individual social media platforms, uh, disputing and debunking conspiracy theories. We saw quite a bit of this during the COVID-19 pandemic where you would scroll past something on your feed and there would be a little bubble that says, oh, this is is disputed. Maybe you take it with a grain of salt. Um, And of course, deplatforming repeat offenders, people who continuously post really harmful content or fake news onto their platforms. And all of this is really important. I, I think it's something that needs to continue, but it ultimately fails to reach out and actually engage with the people who post that content in the first instance. And I think just by deleting the content or uh, deplatforming people from these these sort of um, social media corporation platforms. You mentioned deplatforming. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so deplatforming just means uh, blocking a user from being able to post onto social media platforms, things like Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok, Snapchat, these kinds of things. And why does that matter? Why does that matter for um, humanitarian intervention? What's the practical effect of that? Yeah, so I mean, this is something that I think has been continuing, and the social media corporations are really leading the charge on this. But my research sort of illustrates that 
just by doing that doesn't change people's minds, the people who actually post that content in the first instance. So I propose using what I call cyber humanitarian interventions as a way of fulfilling the responsibility to protect. And there's three ways in which I propose that occurs. The first is by hacking into the perpetrator's networks and blocking their communications, their financial transactions, uh, weapon shipments, ammunitions, essentially everything that the perpetrators actually need to go through with their crimes. The second is using targeted educational campaigns, and that's the use of individuals' big data, so their online activities, their likes, their posts, their locations, to tailor-make particular advertisements that resonates more specifically with those individuals that advocate for restraint um, and respect for human rights. So in the same way we get personalized advertisements for uh, a New Yorker subscription or a pair of shoes online, it's really intended to be very specific to the consumers on social media platforms. And then the final part, which kind of wades more into dicey parts of my research, uh, and that's looking at using influence operations. And so I ask whether there could be a case for using um the responsibility to deceive, so disinformation campaigns online, in order to fulfill the responsibility to protect. Uh, but that's a bit more of a dicey contention. So in some ways, just if, if I've understood you correctly, the link between cyber and humanitarian invention is, intervention is both a method of countering uh, crimes that destabilise security and safety, but it's also the reality that it is a space where these things are also happening. Is that right? Has it sort of got that dual use? Absolutely. It begins from the assumption that perpetrators are online. They are increasingly using these spaces. And so if we're able to frustrate their ability to use cyberspace, then that is an avenue through which we can try to disrupt their commission of crimes. And so the cyber humanitarian intervention angle is just to sort of say, rather than just deleting the online hate speech and deplatforming people from these social media platforms, we should actually go after uh, the potential perpetrators and try to undermine their efforts in a more proactive way. Mm. And you made reference there to the Rwandan genocide, and, and I think you referred to the use of radio. What happened there? Could you explain that a little? So... The radio broadcast in Rwanda is attributed by some people. I mean, it's debated in the literature, but some people say that it played a pretty fundamental role in um, whipping up a frenzy and support for the genocide of the Tutsis, which is an ethnic minority in Rwanda, predominantly by areas um, by uh, Hutu extremists. Um, And so there was a consideration as to whether to block the radio broadcasts and this was decided against by the US for funding reasons. They, they believed it would be too expensive, but also for freedom of speech um, considerations, which is an interesting move because that's not something that uh, really extends beyond the United States uh, in, in the ways that they were thinking about. Thanks for that. And to go back to um, Cecilia now, Cecilia, how did you get involved with this area of research and why does it matter? Yes, so I actually, uh, so I didn't introduce myself too much at the start. I'm an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at the ANU, but I also co-chair the Asia-Pacific Working Group of an organisation called uh, GAMAC. It's the Global Action Against Mass Atrocity Crimes. Um, And so this is, actually Australia was involved in setting it up. It's it's the world's largest um, kind of state-led platform for uh, advancing atrocity prevention. Uh, And we 
published a report. It came out in 2021 on the Asia Pacific, and the title of it was Preventing Hate Speech, Discrimination and Incitement, Lessons on Promoting Tolerance and Respect for Diversity in the, in the Asia Pacific. Now, this report was actually funded and supported by GAMAC because it was identifying one of the crucial problems for atrocities in the region, which was hate speech, as Rhiannon was referring to. In many instances um, of mass atrocity and genocide, we find that hate speech, hate rhetoric and incitement to violence is often a precursor uh, to the violence. Uh, it's not the only factor, but it's an important factor when you have the, the rest of the context in place for mobilising violent action. And so it was through the course of this research, we looked closely at six case studies across the region where we were looking at atrocity situations and linked to hate speech or as an outcome of hate speech. And really, in every single case, uh, social media has been the medium through which uh, hate speech and incitement to atrocity violence has been occurring. And Rhiannon's 100% correct. You know, in the past, this is not a new phenomenon. You know, like this has come, we, you know, the, the Nazis used film and we've had radio and other forms of print and uh, communications media. But what's so interesting about social media as being now the the channel for hate speech predominantly is that it just accelerates and it intensifies and it reaches audiences in very specific ways. So, for example, Twitter bots are being used now to really proliferate and target hate speech towards the constituencies who would be quite vulnerable or open to that kind of information. And we're talking about misinformation and disinformation. And uh, so this is really a space now where hate speech can, can proliferate. So with the responsibility to protect, we have to remember there's two dimensions to this. There's preventive dimension and then there is the protection where your interventions come in, you know, forceful or non-forceful. And so really, I, I think this early space, and uh, I, I think I was, before we started recording this, you know, mentioning that there are a lot of consultations going on at the moment as to how we can start to combat hate speech much earlier on. So some of those ways will be through education. So digital literacy, actually getting to the young people, as Rhiannon was saying, you know, who are the users who's vulnerable to this kind of information. And so can our young people actually not only instill values of tolerance and respect um, for others in the society, but um, can they identify misinformation and disinformation? Can they identify hate speech for what it is when it's coming through and actually have the resilience and the this global citizenship education to be able to identify it and for it not to actually affect them in the way that it does? Um, and so there, there are a lot of other um, aspects that we can speak to around this, but I, I think it's important to remember that at, at the moment, at least, this is one very active area of not only um, research, but also of policy development. That's a great point, uh, Cecilia, that we're not only thinking here about tangibly countering uh, active threats, but about the environment in which those threats can thrive and arise. And clearly the issue of misinformation and disinformation is not necessarily something that's uh, only happening in far-flung places. It's happening here in Australia. Do you have any examples of, of, of that happening in our region or in Australia? Uh, well, we have a, a lot of examples. If, uh, the report that I referred to, so the particular case study that I did was the one on India. And 
In this case, the Rhiannon's referred to the Myanmar case, which was a particularly um, influential case in changing practices. In India, they were live streaming um, the the violence, right? So you had political leaders who were actually broadcasting specific, not just hate speech, but actually telling people, you know, where we were going to go. And they they had influences that were broadcasting live on Facebook, you know, where we're going to meet, who we're going to target, how we're going to target. And so in 2020, the Delhi rights, for example, which was um, a, a situation in which many Muslims were targeted, you know, thousands of homes and businesses and places of worship were destroyed, people were killed. I mean, this was terrible. This happened through Facebook and it's live. And, and there is so much now media footage that is fully accessible on YouTube that shows complicity uh, of police forces, of civilians who were involved in this violence that could be used uh, as evidence for crimes that were committed. And, you know, it's just gone on with with full impunity, which is... So there are very real cases. And something that I, I've been arguing as well um, in in this as this research has been unfolding is that we tend to look back, we tend to look at the Holocaust and the genocide as these big cases, but the benchmark for that is so high. And if we look around us at these kinds of situations that are happening within our region, we looked at Philippines, we looked at Indonesia, Malaysia, Myanmar, Pakistan, as well as India, and there are other case studies that we're, we're looking at developing now from across the region, that if we bring the threshold down from mass atrocities to atrocities, so large-scale violations of human rights and these systematic patterns, actually they're everywhere. And if you want to prevent mass atrocities, you've really got to get good at preventing atrocities and systematic human rights violations before they escalate because that's where the social context of violence and these permissive environments of impunity and, and the I guess the architecture for committing this violence is in place. Uh, and so hate speech doesn't always lead to atrocities. In fact, it rarely leads to atrocities. Hate speech is everywhere. But when we do have situations of atrocities, it's very likely that hate speech, among other risk factors, have been at play. And we know that today this is happening in the cyberspace predominantly. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, the issue of social cohesion, it, it's well documented that that can have a, an influence and an impact on the security and stability of a nation. And hate speech goes to the heart of social cohesion and how we're functioning together as communities. And we've seen that we've seen that play out in some of warnings from the intelligence community, for example, about far-right extremism and, and activity on the internet relating to hate speech. Uh, before I um, move uh, back to Rhiannon, you used a term there, Cecilia, uh, I think it was something like, global citizenship awareness in the, in the context of digital literacy. Could you unpack that a little bit? Yes, yeah, so the UN, uh, actually UNESCO working with the UN Joint Office on the Prevention of Genocide and Responsibility to Protect has recently developed um, some guidelines. I was part of the launch of this last week. Uh, actually associating, well, uh, atrocity prevention with hate speech in, but dealing with it in the education space. So recognising if we really want to get to the heart of making communities resilient to the effects of hate speech and do a lot of this early atrocity prevention work, we've got to get in when the kids are young. We've got to get into schools. And so this global citizenship education is basically um, re-looking at the, the curriculum and, you know, looking at different aspects. So 
human rights education and peace education? How do we teach history? Teaching our own history, teaching the history of other countries that have gone through wars and genocides and raising this awareness and also fostering um, respect and tolerance within society for other groups. So making communities aware of other religions and other um I guess, ways of life. So it's really looking at a holistic way of integrating uh, a perspective into education that makes the young people who are, you know, these these key uses of social media, um, actually um, inoculating them, I guess you could say, against this um, kind of virulent effects of hate speech that are, that are coming at them from different angles. In a national security uh, policy context, that's actually a really profound point that educating our young people is actually one of the strongest and most effective ways we can build a more resilient Australia going forward in terms of literacy. Uh, that's a really interesting point. Rhiannon, would you like to comment on that at all? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in to, to talk about some of the things that Cecilia was raising and the, the educational piece is a really critical factor. One of the things that I think we have to get better at and to keep in mind is really translating the principles that we're trying to convey in terms of uh, peace and respect for human rights in a way that actually resonates with the target population. So a colleague of mine during the PhD was looking at uh, hate speech and human rights in Myanmar, and she found that the Western notion, UN principles of human rights rhetoric really didn't land within certain populations in Myanmar. But if you were able to translate those principles in a way that made sense within a Buddhist context, really leveraging on Buddhism, that's more likely to be successful. So it's not just about going in and propagating um, a lot of languages that make sense to maybe people in the West or, or the UN, but it's about doing it in a way that really makes sense to local populations. Um, the International Committee for the Red Cross has been doing a similar uh, project with the roots of restraint in terms of respect for uh, IHL as well. And IHL, of course, referring to international humanitarian law, which is the body of law regulating the conduct of, of armed hostilities. So in a sense, you're saying, Rhiannon, that uh, in order to effectively counter or at least mitigate threat posed by cyber activity uh, to humanitarian safety, there needs to be cultural awareness and cultural knowledge in the way we're delivering that message. Absolutely. And I think, again, one of the really powerful aspects of social media and the, and the digital age is not just the scale and the speed, something that Cecilia re referred to, but also the fact that there's a huge amount of information that the social media corporations have about almost a, a, a litmus test on the ground. They have the finger on the pulse of how people are talking about things within particular contexts. And so we're able to use that information to not only trace where there could be instances of violence that flare up, um, in addition to the live streaming of, of direct violence, of course, uh, but then also trying to use similar language to talk people back from the edge or try to quell the fervor for violence. And that's something that the digital age is, is distinct from, I think, in a really powerful way from previous uh, examples of genocides and other mass atrocities. We'll be right back. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. So both of you are uh, very um, established scholars doing extraordinary work. If you don't mind, I'd like to just um, talk a little bit about your professional backgrounds and how you ended up doing the work that you're doing. So, uh, Cecilia, I know you're working under um, a very prestigious uh, grant award at the moment and that you've been a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford and also at the City University of New York. Uh, Do you mind just giving us a little bit of information about your background and how you came to work in this area and what your plans are going forward in terms of your research into this important security issue? Yeah, thank you. I think I came into, I mean, RTP is one of the areas that I I look at. Um, I'm very interested in in human protection norms and international law in this space, um, as well as the global governance in particular. So how the institutions are not only created, but reformed and how these are implemented. I came to this really from the bottom up. So I had a background before I did my PhD of working in NGOs for a while. I worked with the Australian Aid Agency, uh, AusAid, before it was it went into DFAT, shows my age. Uh, uh, and But my, my experience, I suppose, particularly working in uh, cu- countries in Southeast Asia, so Cambodia and Thailand and um, different places where I, I worked, I've always been interested in the bottom up aspect, you know, of how the local populations experience security and human security and then how those international interventions and as Rhiannon was saying these kind of concepts that they bring in when I was doing my PhD the big concept was human security of how that was um, if it was even shaping people's lives and so when I come into the R2P space it was really from this understanding of what are the social contexts or the local contexts of violence and how are they manifesting themselves uh, which is where I started to realise that there was this real disconnect between this top-down international language and framework of RTP and intervention um, with local understandings of, you know, intercommunal tensions and violence and these very, you know, historically rooted and embedded patterns of violence. And so my work really tries to get at the heart of how we understand how these important and these significant international principles um, actually manifest themselves and apply in these local contexts. And so that's that's where I um, work at. So my current book is looking at, um, I guess, the development of international law and principles and institutions of human protection over time and um, particularly today how we've arrived at this uh, accountability framework that is really shaping the prevention and protection space and what the implications are. So how we've arrived there and what that looks like. Um, and moving forward, I think I'd like to do a lot more research actually on uh, looking at um, minorities and minority protection. Um, again, how these frameworks from 100 years ago till today have tracked historically um, 
now manifest themselves in, in quite different contexts. Um, so, so I guess that's a, a bit of my more academic research background, yeah. Right, and what happens on the ground matters for resilience and, and it's easy to lose sight of that when we're thinking big picture policy but translating that to a, to a meaningful, as you say, sort of bottom-up approach it's really important for policymakers and, and lawmakers to, to, to sort of bear that in mind. Uh, what about you, Rhiannon? You've also um, done some really interesting projects, uh, including some uh, visiting fellow roles also at the University of Oxford. And as I understand it, uh, at the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence. And uh, I think at the uh, you were doing some research consultancy also for the Oxford Institute for Ethics. How did you get into that work and, and where do you think you're going with it? So my background was on early warning signs for genocide. One of the most prominent early warning signs that's discussed in the literature is dehumanization. So the process of rendering or talking about people as less than human or sub subhuman. And that's of course a really important part of the genocidal process and something that we really try to look out for when we're, when we're looking at potential uh, flare-ups of atrocity crimes. But we also see dehumanization in a number of other processes that don't necessarily lead to genocide. So, uh, treatment of refugees, women, people with disabilities. And so my previous research said that I think there's something else going on here distinct to genocide. And that was the process of uh, what I called toxification. So dehumanization is that which renders the killing of individuals as permissible, but toxification made it a requirement. So the killing is we must get rid of these groups of people because they pose a toxic threat to our society and ideals. So that was where I was working uh, on previously, and I was teaching at the Australian Defence Force Academy just down the road from ANU, and I was asked to teach into the politics and ethics of cyber war. And I said, I don't do cyber, I do genocide research, and they said, just stay two weeks ahead of the students and you'll be fine. Uh, and so I did. And, you know, in, at that point, we were talking a lot about cyber war and cyber crime and cyber terrorism. And I just realized that we hadn't looked at using these similar processes in a context of atrocity prevention. And that's really what kickstarted my, my journey down the, the cyber humanitarian intervention path. Um, so I continued working on that uh, as a postdoc at the um, Australian National University. And now I'm a cybersecurity postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University, continuing uh, working on that project that I've called Algorithms for Atrocity Prevention. So my research working on the book will be continuing to unpack the intersection of cyberspace, AI, big data analytics um, for atrocity prevention. And one of the other areas that I really want to look into as a sort of side project is what we can sort of think of as the return of great power perpetrators. So I think a lot of the toolbox that we have in terms of atrocity prevention has been built on either weak state actors or violent non-state armed groups. So we think about groups like the Islamic State uh, in Iraq and Syria. But China, I think, is really presenting an issue whereby we have a great power that is perpetrating a number of human rights abuses against their Uyghur ethnic minority in Xinjiang. And I'm just not sure if we have the tools that's, that's able to deal with that in, in an effective way. So how do we deal with these sort of return of great power perpetrators um, is something uh, that I'd like to look more into. Yeah, that's a really interesting point and it hadn't occurred to me until you said it that a lot of our approaches have been to states that are less stable. But what happens when it's a great power? What's our toolbox offer us in terms of protecting a population 
um, from a great power, uh, which I'm sure presents different challenges. You mentioned there uh, the role of AI. Could you explain that a little bit in this context? Sure. So AI is artificial intelligence. And the best way of thinking about it is essentially large language model learning based on machine learning. So you, you use a huge amount of data and you pump that into um, a system that analyzes trends. And based on those trends, we're able to uh, pull out different processes. Um, and so the way that I think about it in terms of uh, atrocity prevention is looking at the ways in which online content is talking about risks to minority groups, tracing those kinds of trends, and then developing targeted educational campaigns that try to push back on that. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? Like lots of uh, phenomena or key issues and trends in the national security sector, we're often dealing with things that are metaphorical swords and in a sense can be used both for good and and for for bad. And, and that's a really interesting example of that. We're often thinking about the threats posed by AI, but you've just pointed to a way in which we can harness it actually to the protection of a population. Uh, so that thanks for making that point. Uh, if um, I could ask you, Cecilia, if you were speaking to uh, national security lawmakers or national security policymakers, what are sort of two of the key messages you'd love to get across to them? Okay, yeah, thank you. The message number one, we need to have a more strategic and connected approach or strategy to atrocity prevention. I think it's something that we haven't made the connections very clearly, but when we look at our engagements bilaterally, you know, especially within our region, when we fail to connect the dots between what we're doing through strategic cooperation, through development cooperation, and in these different areas of engagement, have long long-term impacts on states. And if we don't think with an atrocity prevention lens, if we don't really understand how for example, efforts in democratisation or in, uh, you know, economic support are affecting the countries that we're working in. We're finding time and time again that we are ill-prepared when violence escalates and we're not in a situation to be able to respond effectively or to be able to respond to the early warning signs when they're happening. So my key message and my plea is that we think strategically uh, and actually develop a national um, strategy uh, on atrocity prevention, something along the lines that the United States and now the UK government and um, others are, are starting to think about, is how can we be consistent and coherent in the way that we connect our um, our responses uh, and our engagements with other states. Um, and if I could just put in a pitch, I did write a piece for the uh, Institute of Ethics, Law and um, Conflict on this, Foreign Policy and Promotion of Human Rights for Atrocity Prevention, that actually sets out a rationale and, and an agenda for this. Uh, and and so just to, just to uh, clarify, in that paper, do you argue that Australia should have an atrocity prevention policy or strategy? Yeah, so this was written to the UK. So I say that countries like the UK and Australia um, should be doing this. And if we link this, so the what the United States effectively linked national security and the national interest to atrocity prevention because they understood that if they didn't address um, the patterns of atrocities that are taking place within states that, uh, you know, threaten uh, to, to destabilise um, from within, 
um, that they were going to be missing, you know, important opportunities to to be able to to stabilize countries that was both in their interest as well as upholding their international legal and and moral responsibilities in this area. So I think it's important that we actually think a bit more deeply about this, that we don't just say, oh, we're doing conflict prevention and peace building abroad, so, you know, we're doing R2P because we're not. Um, This actually requires um, a cross-institutional approach or a whole-of-government approach to looking at how our interactions um, are you know, affecting states, how that affects their own internal security and how that in turn also shapes our own national security and our own interests. And if if I could um, trouble you a little further, how are some of the ways in which Australia, for example, or other countries behaving that perhaps is inadvertently creating an environment where um, atrocity prevention becomes more difficult or at least it's something that isn't thought about, particularly as you've illustrated that sometimes these things start small. It's about the environment in which this can thrive later on. Yes, if I can give one example, this was not just Australia. This was a lot of Western countries, um, but we also did this when we engaged with Myanmar in the democratisation phase there was, I think, a misunderstanding of really what was going on inside the country. So there was a lot of support for democratisation. There was very close um, support for the military. And with all good reasons, you know, um, Australia was involved in teaching human rights and humanitarian law and maintaining those open channels. Um, And also the support for the peace process. And, And there were obviously many other Western states involved. And these were undertaken in ways, I think, that bound us to a particular political process in which um, ethnic groups and religious groups that we know now, for example, the Rohingya were excluded, actually became targets of the violence. And so the way that we set up the engagement actually meant that we lost a lot of leverage. Uh, and so I think we need to um, be a little bit circumspect in supporting states that are on the democratisation path to uh, to actually we need to hold on to some points of leverage when we're working with regimes that have a history um, of uh, abuses and um, have high levels of impunity for, for committing past atrocities against their own population because actually the whole of the country uh, you know, when the after the coup happened, it really fell apart because the international community was not well positioned um, and didn't have the leverage points um, to, to be able to, um, I guess, to influence the government in the way that it needed. And so I, I do think that there are a number of cases, um, Afghanistan and, and there are others, where the way that we've engaged, even though with good intentions, um, hasn't applied a systematic assessment of risk or hasn't developed the capacity and the leverage needed to be able to identify early and respond to the risk when needed. And as we've seen, that this just hasn't been the prevention of a massacre or, you know, a set of human rights violations, that these have had implications um, nationwide. Um, and so I, I do think we need to start marrying up some of our strategies. A fine but important line for Australia to walk in formulating the way it interacts with our neighbours, as, as you say. Uh, Rhiannon, what about you, if you could capture the ears and the hearts of national security policy and lawmakers, what are your key messages you'd like to get across? 
The main one, I think, is incorporating cyber humanitarian interventions in the atrocity prevention toolbox. I think the problem with atrocity prevention a lot of the time isn't a lack of information. It's not a lack of early warning sign systems that we've, there's been a, a lot of development over the past however many decades in terms of really systematically analyzing this. I think the main point, and this is something that Cecilia, I think, was also kind of alluding to, is it's the problem of political will. Um, it's about garnering political will to, to do something, and that's not just anything, but it's something that's carefully thought out um, and appropriate to the circumstances. And I think what cyber humanitarian interventions promise is a less costly, both in terms of resources and human life, um, so that sort of aver- uh, avoids the body casualty, body bag problem that we have in an aversion in the Western countries at the moment, um, and it's less harmful than traditional measures. So widespread economic sanctions often uh, affect the civilian population more so than the targeted regimes or the people that we actually want to place pressure on. Um, and of course, armed humanitarian interventions, which is often considered a blunt tool for protection. Uh, not saying that it's not something that we should consider in certain circumstances, but we bear moral and legal duties to pursue the least harmful means possible when it comes to protecting populations. And I think cyber humanitarian interventions is a way of doing that in the digital space. So in some cases, as you said, not all, but in some cases, cyber intervention tools could actually be in lieu of, for example, economic sanctions or the use of armed force. Is that that what you're suggesting? I think it's complementary. I think it's it's certainly something that we ought to consider uh, both in terms of the states that are looking to protect their populations and fulfil their responsibility to protect duties against violent non-state armed groups. Um, but then also, again, if the state is proving unwilling or unable to do so, then it's something that the international community can consider as well in terms of supporting the protection of populations. So I don't see it as a silver bullet. Um, but certainly it's something that we ought to consider precisely because I think it's going to be more politically palatable, uh, palatable to policymakers um, when they're considering what do we have in our toolbox that we can roll out in a way that's going to place pressure on potential perpetrators and protect uh, the, minor, the civilian groups that they're going after. And do we have the skills to do this? Is this just a matter of will or is this a matter of expertise? I mean, we've had cyber capabilities for much longer than I think uh, we like to talk about. So a a sort of non-example of where I think we could have used cyber humanitarian interventions actually dates back to the Kosovo conflict of 1999, where the US actually hacked into the Serbian networks and was monitoring a lot of the communications and the financial transactions of Slobodan Milosevic. but chose not to do anything about it. They didn't interfere via cyber because they didn't want to show their hand in terms of the kinds of capabilities that they had right before the turn of the 21st century. And this was something that was really slammed by the then NATO uh, Supreme Commander in Europe. He maintained that actually if we had used these cyber capabilities, um, they may not have needed the bombing campaign. That's a really big call. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but it certainly points to the fact that these capabilities have been around for a long time. Um, similarly, with the 2000 and, uh, 2011 Libya intervention, there was discussions around, well, could we just hack into the air towers and turn off those capabilities? But instead, the decision was made to use airstrikes. So that's in 2011. And 2016, uh, in a sort of counterterrorism, countering violent extremism space, the Australian Signals Directorate, the UK uh, GCHQ, 
and US Cyber Command launched Operation Glowing Symphony against ISIS. And that included hacking into ISIS's networks and deleting terabytes and terabytes of propaganda material that was really central to their recruitment practices. Um, But they also hacked into their accounts and changed passwords and locked them out. And that frustrated frustrated their ability to pay their militants or buy ammunition uh, and food as well. So it's not just um, a political will aspect. We do have these capabilities. We've just been using them in different contexts. And I think we need to look at how we can use them more broadly for the prevention of mass atrocity crimes beyond the counterterrorism space. Yeah, that's really interesting. If you'll indulge me being a bit of a devil's advocate just for a moment, is there a circumstance where, for example, we might employ cyber uh, in the context you've suggested where it tips over into, for example, an act of aggression? Or could we ourselves end up behaving in such a way that it might look like a, a, an attack in a, in, a, in a cyber sense and therefore with a right of retaliation? I think much like everything in cyberspace, it's a very murky Um, area to wade into. So the notion of cyber sovereignty is not settled within the international community. A lot of states believe that it exists, others don't. The Talon Manual uh, and the Talon Manual 2.0, which is um, a group of international legal experts applying international law to cyberspace. So it's not binding, but it's a, a sort of view of how that might translate. They say that cyber attacks that rise to the level of the use of force are those that are considered through their scale and effects tantamount to kinetic sort of traditional measures of of military force. But most of these cyber operations fall short of that. And that means that in the one instance, it's very unclear as to whether that does trigger a right to response. Um, The other side of it means that in some instances, if it doesn't rise to the level of the use of force, it won't need United Nations Security Council authorization. And so that bypasses a lot of the stalemates, again, that we confront when we try to take action to protect populations. Um, but again, a lot of this is very murky and I think it will be subject to if and when it actually rolls out. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Of course, as we know, uh, the use of force is considered unlawful under the UN Charter other than in self-defence or, or with the authorization of the Security Council as as you've alluded to. And I guess if if there are questions around sovereignty in cyberspace, it certainly makes sense, as you've both pointed to, that we think about cyber in the context of humanitarian intervention, in the context of hate speech, and in the context, of course, of uh, keeping our populations safe. Uh, there's a plethora of tensions between principles of free speech and, and the way we behave on the internet, uh, and you've both, uh, in a really interesting and compelling way, um, pulled out very modern examples of how we could be, be making better use of this in, in national security policy making. And I thank you very much uh, for your time today. It's been really helpful and I, I've learned a lot. Uh, so thanks very much and look forward to following your work in the future in this very important space. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you, Rhiannon. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks very much. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.